Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast where we help the 54% of us who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. If you missed the last episode, you may not know that we've rebooted this podcast with a new format. So from here on out, I'm going to be joined by my friend Ravi Gupta and the occasional third guest co-host. Before I kick it over to Ravi, a couple of housekeeping items. Remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. And this week, we'd love it if you would write a review letting us know your favorite new part of the show so we can make sure that as we make possible format changes, that stays in. And then go the step farther. Screenshot your review and tag us on social media so we know that that was you. All right, Ravi, what do you have for us this week? So unfortunately, you know, the Times reported Friday that U.S. intelligence officials found evidence indicating that Russia's military intelligence agency had put out bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The White House now confirms Mr. Trump has been briefed, but insists that U.S. intelligence agencies disagree on whether the claims are accurate. Allegations that Russia offered bounties to Taliban-linked militants for the deaths of American troops, reported first by The New York Times. According to The New York Times, President Trump was given a written briefing on possible Russian bounties on American troops once in late February. The paper reports that investigators are focused on an April 2019 attack where three U.S. Marines were killed by explosives by their armored vehicles near Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. And we don't know yet how many Americans may have been killed as part of this plot, but at least one incident in 2019 that killed three Marines in a car bomb attack near Bagram Airfield is being investigated in connection to the alleged Russian effort. The Times also reported that the president was briefed about the Russian operation months ago, but chose to do nothing in response. Now, Trump denied this claim on Sunday, tweeting that, quote, nobody briefed or told me, Pence, or Chief of Staff Meadows about the so-called attacks on our troops in Afghanistan by the Russians. And he added, everybody is denying it, and there have not been many attacks on us. Well, listeners, I hope you're sitting down, because this may be shocking. But what the president said appears to be false. The Associated Press reported on Monday night that in March 2019, then-National Security Advisor John Bolton personally briefed Trump on the Russian scheme. Also on Monday night, the Times reported that the intelligence had been included in the February 27th edition of the president's daily brief. Jason, as somebody who served in the military in Afghanistan, can you give us additional context to how big of a deal this story is? Well, it's a really big deal to me. Uh, it obviously really pisses me off um, for a lot of reasons. You could go on the personal side, like you mentioned, that one of these attacks happened outside Bagram Air Base. I used to command convoys from Kabul to, to Bagram and back all the time, but it doesn't even have to be that personal. This is another country is is paying and aiding our enemies to kill our soldiers. And the president 
not only doesn't act like it matters now by the time we're recording this he's now claiming it's not even true we have arrived at the point where explaining how trump is not compromised by russia requires you to sound like a conspiracy theorist because you have to be one of those people who's got like strings up on a wall and like a, a like a crazy you know mind map to try to prove how the conspiracy fits together to prove that there's no conspiracy but that's for people who think like all of us there are plenty of people who don't believe that the president is somehow compromised or somehow owes something to Russia. So if we're going to convince our friends on this, we have to sort of put that aside. And the big problem that we face on, on this issue politically when making this argument is two things. One, if you're me, you face the problem of this inspires a great deal of rage. <laughs> and, and so it's difficult for me to talk about any issue where the president of the United States is letting American soldiers be killed without getting really, really angry and being somebody that you can't talk to about it. So that's the first step. I have to, I have to not do that. And then once I've achieved that, it becomes a recognition that Americans who are going to vote on this sort of thing, what they've not yet connected to over the last few years is the idea that this affects their lives or that if the president uh, is you know, somehow compromised by Russia or, or just in general doing the wrong thing with regard to Russia, how that affects them or how that really matters to them. And this is, I think, the most obvious argument yet. I mean, this is the Russians are trying to kill Americans, are in fact helping kill Americans, and the president's not doing anything about it. Now, if you're talking to somebody about this, I think they're going to say uh, something along the lines of, well, haven't we done this before? We, yes, during the Cold War, when we were fighting in Vietnam, when we were fighting in Korea, when we were fighting real wars against the Soviet Union, yes, we went into Afghanistan and aided the Mujahideen against the Soviets. But that was a Cold War. We, we are supposedly not at war with Russia right now. In fact, the president keeps telling us that we have this great relationship with Russia. Well, if we have this great like Canada's not paying the Taliban to kill our people. Right. Like our other allies, quote unquote, allies are not doing that. So I think that's the first part is make the distinction between then and now. And then the other part is, and this is a little more nuanced, but it's important for people to understand that when something like this is allowed to happen, whether it's Russia or anybody else, it puts every American service member or frankly, every American in danger everywhere in the world, because the message it sends is you can kill Americans without consequence. Right. If Russia or any country is paying people to kill Americans, and we're not sanctioning them, we're not even saying, hey, stop it, then it says to terrorist groups and anybody else, like, hey, there's really no penalty for this. And what it reminds me of is that when we were uh, in, in the uh, aftermath of the Soleimani killing, when Iran launched missiles at our bases, and no country in the entire world condemned Iran for doing that. Like, they launched missiles at American soldiers and nobody felt like they had to say, hey, we stand with America, don't do that. And that day was a day where Americans were less safe around the world because there, were, there was clearly less of a consequence for attacking us. And this is another day just like that. Yeah, and I think I want to underscore what you said, which is we didn't even say stop doing that, which is astonishing. And what's also amazing is that since the administration learned of this, they not only have failed to punish Russia, but they have in many ways rewarded them. Now, not necessarily rewarded them in response to this information, but certainly ignored this information in order to give Russia a lot of what it wants. So uh, the Washington Post reported that on three separate occasions between April 
in May, Trump applauded himself uh, for his, quote, very good relationship or, quote, friendship with Russia and Putin. And remember, this is after the intelligence that says that Russia may very well be putting bounties on American soldiers. Then on May 8th, Trump spoke to Putin and offered to send him ventilators to help fight coronavirus. And then I would say this, the saddest of all, Trump called for Russia to be included in the G8 over the objections of all of our allies. And, and some reporting suggests that that's what sunk the G8 summit. And so we've seen Republicans express mostly mild outrage. Now, there are exceptions to this for sure, but they seem rather measured in their outrage here. And you've got to expect more from folks here. This is the same crew that spent $7 million in taxpayer money on a 28-month-long Benghazi investigation, and they seem so measured right now. And, you know, we'll, we'll go back to uh, last week's uh, award winner, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, who's the acting chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and this is what he wrote on Twitter on Monday. He said that he would not comment on specific news reports, but he said that, quote, the targeting of our troops by foreign adversaries via proxies is a well-established threat, and that his panel would, quote, continue to conduct vigorous oversight of intelligence agencies. Now, this does not sound somebody who's particularly angered by what's going on, and you got to wonder whether Republicans' willingness to unite behind Trump over impeachment sent the signal that Russia can act with impunity here. And I'll just make one final point before kicking it back to you, Jason. The White House held a briefing on this on Tuesday for members of Congress, but they only invited Republicans. So it used to be that we were united when it came to threats to our national security, uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Is that unity gone? Uh, it certainly seems to be uh, and has been actually, unfortunately, for several years. I think you can go back to um, just after the Iraq war and maybe before. And look, what I'm about to say is not a, a progressive or a conservative thing to say. It's just my personal view is that the whole exercise of laying partisan ideology over foreign policy has always been stupid. And the reason for that is that the world changes really quickly. And therefore, foreign policy has to change really quickly. And national security policy has to change really quickly. And, and so that's why I think it has always been the case that we stayed pretty united on, on foreign policy. And they had the old expression that unfortunately is a very old expression now, that politics stopped at the water's edge, because it was just really difficult to see how an entire political party could agree on how the, how the country should regard the, wo the world in every single situation. Um, and on the politics of this, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. What the president is now saying, first he said he didn't get briefed, and now he says he doesn't believe it. Well, okay, you got to put aside the he doesn't believe it, it's a hoax thing for a minute, because if somebody is telling you, look, I think it's a hoax, that person is never going to vote for the people that you want them to vote for. Like, you move on to the next person, right? <laughs> That's not going to happen. Uh, I guess if you want to make an argument back to them, it might be that, well, some of this intelligence came from SEAL Team 6, so perhaps we could believe the same people who killed bin Laden. But I don't even think you should get into that. I think that the real question is, all right, maybe he didn't get briefed. We know he did. Let's say he didn't get briefed all those times. Let's say all that stuff you just explained, Ravi, that he was doing after finding out about this, that he had no idea. Well, it's in the freaking paper now. Like, it's in the paper. It's even on Fox News. Does it not upset people that he doesn't seem to care now? That I think that's the big point to make. But while doing that, we have to remember that the Russia issue is a political Rorschach test. Whether they love Trump or whether they're just willing to engage in actual 
you know, intellectual pursuit. Those are the two areas. In that case, that's how they come down on Russia. And the only way that I think this really works politically is the people who know they don't like Trump but are Republicans and are thinking they're going to vote Republican. To me, this is the issue you talk about where you say, look, the people you're looking to vote for for Congress and for the U.S. Senate are the people who are saying nothing while the president you don't like is allowing Russia to pay people to kill our soldiers. It's where you you peel people off of Republicans in 2020 in general. There's one of two possibilities, right? I think it's now well established that, that, was, that this was in the written presidential daily brief. For folks who don't know what this means, this is a document that every president before Trump pretty much read every day that the intelligence community puts together, that people have put their lives on the line in order to get that information in front of the president so that he can make informed decisions about our government. And so, like you said, one of two things is true. Either he read it and ignored it, which is a scandal, or he just doesn't read it, which seems to be the assumption everybody's making. That in and of itself is a scandal, too, because he's ignoring the work product that people are putting their lives in the line so that we can make informed uh, decisions as a government and so that we don't look like fools sitting down with people like Vladimir Putin or inviting them to the G8 while they're trying to murder American soldiers. One of the things that, unfortunately, Trump's incompetence has achieved over the last few years is he's so lowered the expectations for himself that nobody, because people aren't surprised by this sort of thing, they therefore don't react to it. And it is really important to ask the question you just asked, which is, what is our expectation of a president of the United States? And so for me, because I believe in personalizing this stuff, when I talk about this with somebody, I'm saying, hey, look, I was somebody who had to go into rooms that were dangerous, not knowing if I would get out of meetings with very suspicious characters overseas in order to get information and send it up the chain. And at the time, my commander in chief was George W. Bush, who I disagreed with on all sorts of things. But I don't ever remember thinking if this is so important, what I get out of this meeting, that it goes up to him or one of his subordinate commanders, that he won't read it. I never thought that. And I can't imagine being motivated to go back in and risk my life over and over again if I thought everybody will ignore what I send up the chain of command. Let's move on to some lighter content here. We introduced last week this segment called Quarantine Corner, where we essentially just give updates on what's happening in our life vis-a-vis this virus. Uh, Jason, what's your high or low light from this week? Uh, It's sort of both. I'm pretty sure that my son has finally reached his limit on on isolation. Uh, And and the last few days, like we've done a really good job over the last few months of making things fun. There's lots of music in the house. We're, we're coming up with creative stuff. But my work and Diana's work both have picked up a little bit lately. And so there has been more pressure on True to find things to do, um, you know, play with Legos more and that kind of thing without us. And I think he's just reached his limit. And we're having to stop, reassess, and be like, all right, how do we re-engage this kid? And, 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 and I've just had to talk to him and be like, buddy, your mom and I never had to go through this as kids. We know this is really hard. We're sorry. And, and he's really understanding about it, but I think he's reached his limit. <laughs> I think we're all kind of over it, as we probably talked about last week a little bit. You know, my, my highlight is, for background for listeners, I've been, I come from New York. I, I live in New York most of the time, but I've been down south, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia since March 15th. And I I picked up with almost a moment's notice back on March 15th and filled up a duffel bag and I haven't been home since. But uh, in the next couple of days, I'm going to be heading back to New York. And uh, it's been a while. So I'm looking forward to just getting back into it in New York. Obviously, 
re-entering safe, safely and following all the guidelines there. But it's going to be weird. I feel like it's almost like the Odyssey uh, heading back home where everything's changed. I'm glad that you get to go home, but I think you got a pretty good spot where you are, man. Like your Instagram has like pictures of bears out the front door. <laughs> yes. You know, it's been I, it's been a dual feeling of watching people, you know, both my parents are uh, essential workers on the front lines of our medical system. And my brother is also an essential worker with the federal government and seeing their experience and people I care about. And then also having this incredibly productive period of isolation where uh, we've done things like launch this podcast and new nonprofits and writing things. And so this will be where the two worlds collide. And so the next few months will be really interesting. We're going to pause for a moment to tell you about two shows we think you might like. The first is a new podcast from VPM, Resettled. Hosted by Ahmed Better, a social entrepreneur and former refugee from Iraq. Resettled is a new podcast that explores the process of refugee resettlement through the voices of those directly experiencing it. On the show, you'll hear from resettled refugees themselves, not as victims or statistics, but as real people living real lives right next door. Each episode explores a specific theme in their journeys upon arrival to the United States. From navigating the healthcare system to graduating from high school, we share in the intimate moments of refugees' lives and explore the policies shaping their futures. Instead of telling stories of individuals characterized solely by their persecution in their home countries, this series tells the stories of fascinating people who grapple with obstacles like many Americans and are extraordinary beyond their refugee story. Listen and subscribe to Resettled wherever you get your podcasts. Another podcast we want to make sure you're tuning into is The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics from our friends here at Wonder Media Network. Women of color are too often forgotten in most media coverage. The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics is all about amplifying the voices of women of color. It is the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. It's hosted by Ashanti Gower, president of Emerge, who speaks with influential activists, politicians, and journalists who are playing a transformative role in the 2020 elections and beyond. From Stacey Abrams to Joy Ann Reed, these women are changing the face of politics. Listen and subscribe to the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics wherever you get your podcasts. And so back to some deeper subjects here. We have a segment that we call This Week in Misinformation. And basically what we like to do is just take either a meme, an article, an ad, or talking points from the Republican side and dissect it and tell you as much as we can about how true it is and most importantly, how you can counter it. Jason, what do you have for us this week? Uh, I saw this video of Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas blaming Black Lives Matter protesters for the spread of the virus. Have you seen this? Uh, This spikes happened after tens of thousands of people got together in close proximity. Again, there's nothing wrong with saying that. That's that's just the truth. And we're just dealing with it now. It's it's not about blaming anybody. It's just about being honest with with causes and effects. Oh, I have. uh, It's a particularly dangerous lie because... If it's believed by the GOP base, it'll give them a permission structure to continue going about their lives without masks and ignoring social distancing restrictions, which we talked about last week, is has huge consequences for our country. And what I find particularly interesting is that Representative Crenshaw has been long criticizing local leaders like Lena Hidalgo in Houston, who I had a chance to talk to the other night, who have been trying to institute common sense public health measures. Now that the spread is getting out of control in places like Texas— and not just Texas, to be clear, 
Representative Crenshaw wants to shift the blame to others instead of taking responsibility for his poor decisions and signaling as a leader. And just to be clear, there's absolutely no evidence for what Representative Crenshaw is saying. And before I get into that evidence, uh, I just want you to ask yourself, you know, if Representative Crenshaw is right that the protests are somehow responsible for this surge, uh, how come in places like Minnesota where the protests began and where we've had a longer timeline uh, and more intense protests or New York City or Chicago, how come we're not seeing massive spread there? Uh, and no doubt we're going to likely see increases in cases in a lot of those cities, but we're now well outside of the window that would point to the protests as the cause. So Jason, you talked last week about the importance of leadership when it comes to this virus. Uh, how do you think about that vis-a-vis -vis, uh, some of these statements from folks like Crenshaw? Yeah, I think this is an example of where the protesters actually demonstrated more leadership than the people in charge of this country. The protesters, if you look at the videos of the protests and the pictures, the vast majority of people are wearing masks. They're getting together in groups, but they're outdoors and they're wearing masks. Yeah, I think this is a common trend that we see uh, from Republicans, which is to try to take examples of some things some liberals may have done and extrapolate to say that every liberal is now responsible for all of that. So uh, they want you to believe that because some protesters didn't have masks, most protesters didn't have masks, and that if some protesters didn't have masks, we're all responsible for it. But let's get to the, the sort of science as we know it right now of what Representative Crenshaw is saying, because I'm sure he's pouring over like science journals and yeah. uh, and the Journal of the American Medical Association, et cetera, to, to come to the conclusions that he he's sharing. But let me just try to share with the uh, the audience here a little bit about what we know about what is responsible for the spread and what's not. So to be clear here, Representative Crenshaw is trying to play down the role of restaurants and bars in the spread because he has been largely cheerleading the lifting of restrictions. Uh, but from what we know about the virus, transmission outdoors is actually far less likely than indoors. So uh, shout out to The Atlantic, which published an article at the end of May that cited two papers one from Hong Kong that found that the cases, uh, they looked at 7,324 documented cases of coronavirus in China, and only one transmission occurred outdoors. Uh, they looked at a second study from Japan, which found that the risk of infection indoors to be 19 times higher than in open air environments. Now, to be clear, you should still be safe outdoors, wear your masks, stay six feet apart from folks. Uh, another part of this is air conditioning, which appears to be playing a factor in the spread of disease in bars and restaurants. You know, obviously, as temperatures rise, more people are using air uh, air conditioning. The Harvard Gazette published a piece earlier this week about how AC could be contributing to the rise of the virus, especially in the South. Uh, and as fresh air is limited in these environments, uh, folks are going to be breathing and rebreathing the same air. So that's the science, Jason. Anything you want to add to that? I think we should... Meditate for a moment on the tactic that uh, Crenshaw is using here, because what he's doing is, and it's very effective, he's absolving people of their own past decisions. He's, he's confirming or he's reaffirming their actions, and that's really persuasive, right? Hey, you were right. The other people were wrong. And so if you're talking to somebody who brings this up or, or puts this on their social media, then they're doing it because it confirms their own behavior and it absolves them. And so what's not going to work is explaining to them why they were wrong in the past. What you can do is you can absolve them of responsibility and then change their behavior in the future. And the way I would do that is I would say, look, 
the guidance has been all over the place. So I get it. Maybe I was wearing a mask. Maybe you weren't. But at, at the time, who really knew which of us was right? Because the guidance was all over right, the place. Right. None of us were perfect. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not indicting you. It's just that now we know. And so to say that that these protests spread it, it doesn't even matter. What we know now is that you're far more likely if you're indoors and without a mask to spread it. So how about we just do it right from now on? We have a segment that we introduced last week called Unsolicited Campaign Advice. And this is just our opportunity to bring to the table uh, our experience, you know, you of running and me of helping other people run campaigns, just helping folks out there who are running campaigns uh, up and down the ballot about how to run right now in this incredibly uncertain time. Jason, what do you have for us this week? So this week, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that a lot of our messaging has been about the importance of vote by mail, us being the left, uh, the importance of vote by mail, the importance of being able to vote safely come November and in these primaries. And one thing I think we have to be really careful of is we have to make sure that we are not presenting voting as something that's going to be really difficult or really dangerous because there are going to be places in this country where the Republicans are going to get their way and vote by mail is not going to be entirely available and they're going to get their way and voting is going to be difficult. They're going to do things where, like where there's not enough polling places and there's long lines. And one of the really problematic traps about voter suppression is that as we criticize it, sometimes what happens is we inadvertently contribute to voter suppression by having this unified message that voting is too hard, mm. that voting is inconvenient, or in this case, that voting might be dangerous. So we have to be really careful about the way we talk about this with people. We have to advocate for vote by mail. We have to advocate for voting to be safe, but we don't want to leave the impression with people that they shouldn't go vote. We also have a uh, series of segments where we give awards out to folks, and uh, this is just our opportunity each week to stop and just highlight things happening on the other side and, and actors within the Republican Party uh, who have gone above and beyond. And I just want to pause here because I first want to thank all the people out on Twitter who've given us tons of suggestions over the course of the past week and have given us some critiques. And one critique I want to acknowledge is one or two people on Twitter were kind of like, hey... Your whole goal is to help us to have better conversations with folks on the other side. Why are we kind of making fun of people? Uh, and so I just want to address that really quickly because we, we value this feedback. Um, number one is part of what we're trying to do through these awards is surface more misinformation that's happening so that you can deal with it. But the second thing is we want to make this a little entertaining and fun. And so although we're giving out these awards, we're not trying to villainize anybody. We're just trying to have a little bit of fun with this while we also arm you to tackle misinformation. You can't be productive all the time. I mean, like, <laughs> we're, we're human beings too. We need an outlet. So the first award is what we call the Lindsey Graham Total Capitulation and Submissile Award. Uh, it's reserved for the Republican politician who knows better, but is playing the part out of cynical calculation. Let me first say props to Lindsey Graham on now going two weeks in a row without winning the award uh, that is named for him. That's, that's impressive. May have to change the name. Uh, yeah. Oh, we're not there yet. Uh, I believe um, in him. I believe he'll come through soon. Yeah, I, I'm, me too. Uh, we're going to bend our rule this week, and we're going to give the award to someone who isn't technically a politician. So the award goes to Ben Shapiro. And uh, Ben Shapiro had a clip, made its rounds on the internet this week, where he responded to the news that Trump retweeted a video 
that had somebody in it yelling white power. And Ben Shapiro, who apparently can read the president's mind, uh, said that, you know, I think that the the president didn't hear that part of the clip when he was retweeting. And, and he goes through a lengthy explanation as to why he believes this. If he had actually known what was in the video, you think he would have tweeted it? Or is it more likely that, like everybody else, the sound was off on his computer? He sees a person yelling with a Trump 2020 sticker on the front of the golf cart. Trump loves everybody who loves him. And this is a simple fact of the matter. And so he retweets the thing. Anyway, here's the video Trump retweeted and then had to take. Now, um, one of the reasons why I want to explain that Ben Shapiro knows better is that I've actually now, because of this podcast, spent a lot of time listening to Ben Shapiro. Uh, and I know everybody's jealous, but he has some smart things to say every now and then, uh, and maybe even more than every now and then. Like, he's he's not a stupid person. There could be a dialogue that we could be having from left to right where he, in good faith, is engaging in, in these ideas. But when he says things like this, where the president retweets something where in the very beginning of the video somebody says white power and he does it at a time when there's some really inconvenient news about Russia, that the president somehow doesn't know what's in this tweet or that we should somehow excuse it, like like that the president of the United States with the kind of audience that he has, like let's take it that he didn't know what was on this tweet, which I think is very, very, very unlikely, that the president shouldn't be held responsible for being that sloppy for sharing something racist to the entire American and global public. Jason, what should we make of this? You know, first of all, he's being a politician. And what he's doing is he knows that while, and I, I've, I've done TV with Ben Shapiro, and I agree with what you said, he's a, a very intelligent person, which is why it's so upsetting that over and over again, he pretends that he's not. Because he is a slave to his own constituency, and his constituency is... I mean, there ain't a lot of people listening to Ben Shapiro who didn't vote for Donald Trump, and he knows that. And he can't take on Donald Trump very often and keep his listeners, and so he, he does this sort of thing. And so if somebody were to say this to me, well, you know, I don't think the president uh, heard it. I wouldn't argue with whether the president heard it. I would just say, hey, you know what? Uh, you and I are friends, and I know you well, and you disagree with me, and you support Trump. But I bet that if you tweeted out a video that where the first 10 seconds of it, there's a guy yelling white power, not only would you delete it, but I think you would be mortified. Like, you're a good person. I think it would bother you for, like, weeks. And I think your next tweet would be a deep and sincere apology. And why didn't the president feel that way? Yeah, and I, I think this gets back to this question of, do we have a competent leader? Do we have a moral leader? And choose your own adventure, right? Sit down with somebody and be like, either this person is incredibly incompetent or incredibly immoral. Some of us may believe both, uh, many of us. But one thing I want to say about Ben Shapiro here, because I do think we'll probably wind up talking about people like Ben Shapiro over the course of this podcast, is that part of what we want to do with this is help you understand what is happening in the immediate environment on the right. And I want to shout out some some good work done by uh, Judd Legume and Tesneem Zakaria, uh, who did some great reporting in, in a website called Popular Info. And they looked at the Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's website, and, and showed that despite having a really small staff, they're the seventh-ranked publisher on Facebook by measures like likes, shares, etc. And I'm going to quote what they found. They said that they, uh, and this being the writers of this article, found that uh, they discovered a network of large Facebook pages, each built by exploiting racial bias, religious bigotry, and violence that systematically promote content from the Daily Wire. These subpages have over 2 million followers, 
and they don't disclose a business relationship with the Daily Wire, uh, but they all post simultaneously the content from the Daily Wire. And the article talked about how this could be violating Facebook's rules because Facebook allows pages to be paid to post content, but you have to disclose the sponsorship uh, using Facebook's branded tool. And so what appears to be going on is there are a lot of secret, well-financed backers of Ben Shapiro out there promoting his content so that your relatives, your neighbors, your grandparents are seeing his messages and not other content out there. Jason, we have another award to give out. Second award of the week is what we call the Kellyanne Conway Alternative Facts Award. Uh, This goes to a member of the Trump administration each week who tells a public and easily falsifiable lie. Dude, we could do like a podcast about this every day. But anyway, there's one award per week. Robbie, go ahead. Yeah, and we're going to give this one to our vice president, Mike Pence. You know, in the White House Coronavirus Task Force's first press conference in two months, which happened on Friday, which in and of itself we could talk about for a segment, if not the whole podcast. But uh, the vice president claimed that the United States had, quote, flattened the curve. Secondly, uh, we want the American people to understand it's almost inarguable that more testing is generating more cases. To one extent or another, the volume of new cases coming in uh, is a reflection of a a great uh, success in expanding testing across the country. And he said this as new cases are rising rapidly in this country. Pence, who once said that the U.S. coronavirus outbreak would be, quote, behind us by Memorial Day, described the nation's testing and prevention efforts as, quote, a national accomplishment. And he expressed just unbridled optimism that we're going to get through this, all the while acknowledging that we have a precipitous increase here, uh, especially in in some states like in the South, and we're seeing in California now as well. Less than 24 hours before Pence's appearance on Friday, the U.S. reported more than 39,000 new COVID-19 cases, a record single-day increase. We've seen even bigger increases since then. He attributed the rise in reported cases to increased testing, which is a lie that we exposed last week in this segment. Medical experts uh, continue to push back on that claim, including the director, this administration's own director of the Center for Disease Control. Jason, what should we make of all of this? I think this is fascinating that just like last week, this is a type of leadership that is anti-leadership, right? Because part of leadership is actually giving people bad news. When you look at New York, for instance, where uh, Mayor de Blasio has come out of that situation not particularly well thought of for his handling of COVID, whereas uh, Governor Cuomo has come out of it with people really pleased. I mean, he's like 80 plus percent approval. And if you look at the numbers of New York State, New York City, from what I've seen, the, the end results are not drastically different, but people give Governor Cuomo, very high marks. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is Governor Cuomo leveled with people the entire time. Governor Cuomo at no point pretended that the situation was better than it was. And that's leadership, whether you're talking what soldiers want from their leaders, in my experience, or what voters want from their leaders in the country. People just want to know the good news and the bad news so that they can go through it with you. And, and so what Pence is doing here is really interesting because he's trying to make it all seem great, and so is Trump, and they're trying to speak it into existence and convince people that everything's fine, but they also know that the more they do that, the more people are not going to take precautions, and they're going to go out, and the situation's going to get worse and worse. So then what you see uh, Mike Pence do is he says, look at all these places where uh, we've had all the success, and then he checks off, like, 
Washington State and all these other places that are run by Democrats who have put in things like mask requirements. So what he wants to do is he wants to pass the buck on leadership and force Democratic governors and mayors to make decisions that he doesn't want to be responsible for making, and then he wants to take credit for their actions. So I think this is an important place to point out to people. All the places where, where uh, good progress has been made, they're run by Democrats, and that in and, of, in and of itself is not a good enough argument. So you have to say, and look, Vice President Pence is actively taking credit for it. Uh, one thing I'll add, just so that nobody comes at Jason on this, is, as somebody who watches New York, is that Cuomo's popularity has gone down about 10 points since uh, numbers that Jason described, but he's still wildly popular. And he's not perfect as somebody who's been following him. He he hasn't completely owned the nursing home situation, for example, but he, you could tell that this is a person who's not afraid to deliver the bad news. As we round out this podcast, we always like to share something uh, personal in our lives before giving people action. And we have this segment we call Midlife Crisis Corner, where we share something, whether it's fitnessy or uh, nutrition-wise, sleep, whatever, uh, from our lives, something we learned the past week or applied in the past week. Jason, what do you have for us? Cottage cheese and hot sauce, man. Like, it's just the perfect snack. And I, I put that on social media a little while back, and it was a very divisive opinion. But, you know, you need a little bit of protein, you need a little bit of fat, and it's tasty. Cottage cheese and hot sauce, man. It's been like I've going. I'm going through so much cottage cheese and hot sauce as a snack during this. Set. I'm gonna take your word on this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have. Uh, I also have a nutrition piece. Uh, there's this cereal called Magic Spoon, uh, and you. Can, I think you can only order it on the internet. But it's basically sugar-free, carb-free, or very, very low-carb cereal. And I was always, as a kid, obsessed with cereal, and and then as an adult, realized that it's really, really bad for you. Uh, and so I haven't really been eating cereal over the past decade, but learned about this cereal. And it's it's so good that if I have to discipline myself not to eat entire boxes of this stuff at a time. Uh, and so you should check it out. Uh, and I'm sure there's some chemicals in there that aren't great for you. And I just want to say... Don't even worry about tweeting at me about it. I'm sure that the chemicals are bad. I don't. You already know. I don't want the info. I want to. I want to blissfully be unaware of what's going on here. Um, and as a, as a disclaimer, they're not an advertiser with us. Although it sounds like we're open to it if they're listening. We're open to it, but for the folks at Magic Spoon, <laughs> I, I won't mention those chemicals anymore if you advertise. So, uh, I'm 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 for sale, is what I'm saying. Magic Spoon, come come find me. So on more serious note, uh, Jason, we like to end with a segment that we call Grab an Oar. I'll start this week by saying that I run this group called Arena. You could read about us. Uh, we're at Arena Summit on Twitter and Instagram, and arena.run uh, is our website. But we are releasing the same day that we're releasing this podcast, uh, Thursday, we're releasing uh, what's called the Arena 201 trainings, which are for folks who want to get involved in our politics and want to deepen their level of experience and knowledge. We're having trainings on everything from advanced communications, digital campaigning, vote by mail, shifting your budget in the COVID era. And you can go and apply for these trainings. We set up a special website. It's uh, arena-academy.run, arena-academy.run. Check it out. Jason, what else do you have for us? 
So as I mentioned last week, and as I think a lot of listeners are aware, uh, I'm the president of Veterans Community Project. We build uh, housing for homeless veterans, and we also build outreach centers across the country for veterans. Uh, we have something going on right now that's really cool, which is we have these great masks that you can go to veteranscommunityproject.org and go to a shop, and you can order one of these masks. And for every mask that you order, we give one to a veteran who needs it. So they're great masks, and... Uh, and I would encourage everybody to do it. To wrap up, let me just say how much we both really appreciate all of the incredible feedback uh, in this past week. Uh, personally, for me, it's meant a lot to be able to come back and do this podcast and be so embraced by everybody. I, After 677 days off, you come back and you have no idea whether or not the audience is still there. And I can tell you that uh, it just feels like a big big hug uh, for so many people to be downloading and listening and to be tweeting at us about it and and to review it uh, so often. So it, it really means a lot to me and I appreciate it. And I, and I would ask everybody to continue to go on social and tell your friends that this is back and to tell them what you love about it because that's how we're going to continue to grow this. So with that, I still have my personal mission of making sure that Ravi has as many followers on social as possible. It's just sort of a hobby of mine. Ravi, give him all your handles. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you, Jason, for <laughs> helping me grow my, uh, my small but growing Twitter and Instagram followers. So folks can find me at, at Ravi M. Gupta on both Instagram and Twitter. And then Majority54 is at Majority54 on Twitter. We're working on the other platforms. I'm sure that'll happen eventually. I am still at Jason Kander pretty much everywhere, but TikTok, I don't even know how TikTok works. So with that, thanks y'all for listening. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Special thanks to Diana Kander and Echo Mountain Recording Studios. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about one more show that you might want to tune into, and it's called Entry Denied. Entry Denied is an eight-episode series from the Tempest Tossed podcast that examines the dramatic impact of Trump policies on migrants, refugees, immigrant communities, and the nation. It's co-hosted by award-winning journalist Deb Amos and Alex Olenikoff, who's the director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School, the former UN Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees, and somebody that I know of because he's a former law dean at my alma mater, Georgetown Law. Alex and Deb are joined by leading journalists, migrants, and academics to show how Trump was able to accomplish much of what he promised during his presidential campaign, including restrictions on asylum seekers, increasing ICE operations, and significantly limiting legal immigration. New episodes of Entry Denied are released weekly on Tuesdays. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.